Hi everyone, welcome to Behind the Grid, where we explore worldviews from around the world and the key moments that change them forever. What I want to offer you right now is an opportunity to experience your world through someone else's story and to perceive your challenges from a fresh perspective so that you can get past them and reach your wildest goals. I'm your host, Chris Owl, and welcome to the show. Before we start, I want to give a big thank you to our sponsor, Essential Vibes Frequency Jewelry. They're a really cool company. They found a way to put frequencies into metals and crystals, which have different effects when you wear them on your body. If you want to check them out, go to essentialvibes.ca slash owl. Today, it is my honor to have Natalie Q on the show. Natalie grew up a true believer in Mormonism and then left to find her own way in the world. Today, Natalie is the host of Your Spin Out is Gorgeous, where she deals with life's most painful rock bottom moments and handles them with brutal honesty and powerful self-awareness. Natalie, welcome to Behind the Grid. Thank you so much for having me. I'm so excited. It's so it's it's such a pleasure to have you on this because I although I didn't grow up in Mormonism like you, I grew up Christian and in a lot of ways I can relate to your story. I know what it's like to totally believe in one worldview and think everybody else is wrong and I I've got the right the right one way. <laughs> Mm-hmm. Um, and then I know what it's like to escape and I know the pain that you feel, um, becoming whatever, whatever it is that you end up after for, for you and I, it was an atheist uh, and there's a lot of pain that you deal with sort of as you polarize to the other, the other perspective, uh, mm-hmm. and then finding your way into an integrated perspective where you seem to be now and where I seem to be now, but who knows, maybe in five years, we're <laughs> awful. So. Well, I think one thing that experience gives you is like, and the kind of thing that's exciting about it, but also scary is once you've been given one worldview and then you process the, the leaving of that one and what that all means, and this is so multi-layered, but the scariness of forming your own or that you might all you learn is like how much more there is to learn and how much more could be real what you know it just sends you on this quest of like never really arriving which is maybe the point maybe yeah. arriving is wrong I, or not that there is a right or wrong <laughs> yeah i think it's then where they talk about having the beginner's mind and the the further they advance the more of a beginner's mind they have so <laughs> yes yes exactly it's kind of paradoxical but also intuitive if you've experienced it yeah <laughs> i love that i love that you've had that experience um it's it's a really connecting experience um to to go through that and and share it with someone and my journey has led me i love your topic because then the worldview which we don't always get the opportunity to really dive into what has what experiences have really shaped a person in how they're perceiving the world and what reality even is it's yeah. it's fascinating so i i am so excited for our conversation but all of the other conversations you're going to have with your other guests as well 
Oh, thank you so much, Natalie. I want to start right at the beginning with you. I don't even know that much about Mormonism. Like I've watched a South Park episode and (laughs) (laughs) that and look more of the musical. You're good. You got it. I haven't even seen that yet. It's on my to-do list. But at the same time, I know that there is like, it's really easy to make fun of cultures, but there's also value in these cultures. And that can be really hard to rectify. Like, how do you take the good and how do you leave the bad? Uh, behind Uh, and and the fact that that might be different for different people. So why don't you give us a bit of a crash course into the Mormonism you grew up in and share with us some of the, the positive and negatives for your life. Sure. And that's such a great way to couch it. And it is really true. And I hope, um, you know, I want to speak honestly about this topic. And that does mean talking about some of the ugly parts. But then sometimes when we're talking about the ugly parts, we forget that there are really beautiful parts of it as well. And um, it's, it's a really interesting religion. God, where do I start? The basic premise is... Um, The Book of Mormon is a companion to the Bible, and what the premise of that is, is that in 600 B.C., I think it is, 600 B.C., um, Jerusalem was wicked, and this family and another family needed to leave, and so they build a boat, and they sail toward the new Americas, the American continent, where you and I grew up and lived. And so, in reality, this was a way to explain these Native American relics that Joseph Smith um, grew up around in the 1800s in, um, I think it was, was it Palmyra? God, you're really testing me here on like the specifics, but don't quote me. Like it's more the, 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 the heart of the message than the actual, you know, was that the actual city he grew up in, but it's upstate New York. And so this explained why these people had inhabited this continent. And this was actually part of my leaving because that's totally been debunked. These people, you know, these people walked over from a land bridge that existed 15,000 years ago that's now submerged and they're Asian. But um, Mormonism came out about at, came about in a time when we didn't know much about the world in that way. And it was in the 1830s that this was being discovered. And Joseph was a really interesting, charismatic kind of a guy. And he founded this movement and he was martyred. And Brigham Young brought hit the congregation west here and settled in Salt Lake City, where I live and where I was raised. And it's, I mean there is a real fascination with it, right? We see the Mitt Romneys, we see the Osmonds, Book of Mormon, the musical, the South Park episodes. Like you can tell there's a real kind of funny spirit to joke about because it honestly is kind of, it's kind of silly, but it's not, you know, I don't know how it's just to describe it, but we, we all know from all religions, all religions are easy to make fun of because when you really break down what you're basing your life on, it is, you know, you want to make fun of people believing in, you know, spirits and woo woo. And that's really easy to make fun of too. But at the same time, I don't know. I say go read some books and some books that I would recommend. I love the Mormon murders, which is a fascinating book where um, this guy, 
who knew certain documents that would be incriminating against the church should exist. So he forged them and sold them to the church. And the story gets so out of hand and escalates that he actually does murder two people. And how he got caught, he was bombing them. The third bomb went off in his car and he got caught. So he's still in prison, you know. <laughs> but certain books like this that that tell the story through through the lens of like how extreme it can get. Another one, John Krakauer's Under the Banner of Heaven, um, will illustrate not only like weave some of the story and the premise in, but also people's humanity of where they can then take these beliefs and maybe, you know, in some ways go off the rails with it, but it'll still give you a really maybe basic insight into what it's like to have some of these really kind of off kilter premises be so deep to your heart. And you really, really believe them And your, your worldview is that you're basing your entire life off of these things, which is what I did do. You, you called me a true believer as you, you introduced me. Yeah. What I does that truly, mean? It's a way to differentiate. There's kind of a joke that everyone's some kind of Mormon. Maybe that's even my joke. So true believer is someone who's in it, faithful, going to the church, going to the temple. I'm an ex-Mormon. Sometimes people call them former Mormons. You're probably a never-Mormon because I suspect you were never-Mormon. So yeah, you're some kind of Mormon. And um, yeah, so for the time that I was in it, I did truly believe it and base my entire worldview off of these premises. And that in and of itself was a really, really interesting experience. And why it's so important for me to talk about it is because, okay, I'm born into it. My parents are believers. Their parents were believers, except my grandma. My dad's mom wasn't Mormon, but um, when is the right time to start to assess everything in life that you've been told, especially if your relationships and your identity are based on a continued belief in that. It's it's really terrifying. So there is no good convenient time to do it. Nope. So what time did you do it? What age? I was 29. Oh, wow. You really mm -hmm. believed it for a while. Yeah, three decades. Yeah. Whoa. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. I'm not even 29 yet. <laughs> oh, there you go. Yeah, I know. See, and that's what's so crazy to me. This month is my 10 year anniversary. So in so many ways, this, it doesn't feel like ancient history because my family's still in it. I live in Utah right now. But in another way, it was so such a part of my formative years and and my marriage and yeah. my the ways I was raising my kids that like it's, I don't know, it's, it's just, you, it, it doesn't leave you. It doesn't yeah. go away. It's still there in so many ways. And the fact that you're tied in with your community, like I know what that's like. When I left Christianity, all of my friends were Christian except one atheist, which I would debate at school. And I, I didn't really have any friends in school other than than an atheist and uh, and and one guy I played video games with, but you, you know, like other than that, those two friends at school, everybody was Christian. All my good close friends were Christian. So when I left, that was so painful for me. That was so hard because 
you know, like even though I can still hang out with my friends and I've seen some of them since, there's a barrier now, you know, and it's it's just it's hard to talk. It's hard to relate now. So I agree. I totally understand. What was that experience like for you when you left? And how did you get through that? Yeah, I think that's a really common experience. And I was lucky that I had left Utah many years before. So I had lived in Asia for three years and then I had been in Australia for two and I would continue to be in Australia for another five. So that was amazing to have those first five years not really surrounded by Mormons. I had totally integrated myself and my life um, in Sydney, but luckily when I left, I had moved to Melbourne three weeks before. So while I was totally immersing myself, it was, these were really shallow relationships and at least the people closest to me were actually honestly sort of fascinated by what I was going through. And, um, but at home, yeah, everyone I knew, elementary, junior high, high school, college roommates, my immediate family, um, I had a chance phone call. This is kind of a weird story, I think. I've never heard of somebody talking about a story like this. Most people will sort of start to understand that they've looked for Hebrew blood in all of these tribes from Alaska to Chile. So back to the premise. If the premise of Mormonism is that these people came from Israel, we now have genetic testing. So we're able to test them. And those tests have been done by a guy called Simon Southerton, who is Australian. So this information was big in Australia. Um, So you're starting to see through all of that and, and, that's the information that this chat, this person on the chance phone call shared with me. Most people encounter something like that and take like eight months to kind of like ruminate over it, sort of let things dissolve, sort of let things draw a natural conclusion. But when she told me that on the phone call and she, there was one other piece of information, she didn't explain it very well. But to me, it was like, okay, where there's smoke, there's fire. Like I, I, this actually makes so much more sense with my life as I've experienced it, that all of this was made up, that, that Joseph Smith was con man, that he got money and adulation and he was a prophet and he was a hero and things got out of hand. And this whole thing just took this crazy momentum forward that is carried forward today when people still believe it, but I have never resonated with it, that it is true. But the pressure to say that it was for, um, for my community, for, for acceptance within my community was so pervasive that I not, not only did it and then thus was part of perpetuating it, but in my own mind was like, I really feel like you're telling me this guy is red when I can see that it's blue, but you're making me say that it's blue. So for your love and acceptance, I'll say that it's blue. But in my mind, that's partially true. In In my mind, though, I also really, really, really was trying to believe it and live it. And I thought, this is really kind of weird, but it's God. And who am I to question that? I mean, there's a lot of really confusing, conflicting feelings leading up to an event like that at the moment of the event like that. And then after the event, but I, I still feel the effects of this event daily today. That's okay. Um, but yeah, like? I, what is it? What, what does that feel like? Like, is it, is it like a, a heart sensation or what is the sensation of that feeling? Sometimes it 
it, it doesn't really matter. It's just more that like, you know, something will surprise you. I didn't understand this because this is never how I do friendships, but I saw it like a meme or something. It said something like some people will get close to you to talk to you, to talk about you. And that really put into language different ways people would pop in under this guise of like, we still love and accept you. Tell us who you are, reveal yourself. And then would just like ghost, just different ways in which like, like, like you've experienced, how do you really bridge this relationship where you were bonded on this closeness of belief? And then once they still believe and you don't, it sets you up to be in different camps and you're really trying to find common ground and what is the real nugget and basis for your connection together. And for some people, you're going to find that. And for others, it's going to be a series of really hurtful encounters for years. I had one, I finally cracked it. People did that to me over and over and over again. I had one, she was a college roommate. She'd call, she'd send like, birthday messages to me in Australia. Natalie, and she'd be like crying. It's kind of pathetic now that I think of it. And when I moved home, she begged me for a year to get together. And I said, you know what? Everyone does this. Everyone does this. And then here's what they do. I don't know where they go off and what they talk about and what they do, but I don't want to do this anymore. So if you are serious about being my friend, knowing who I am, because I don't want to have a friendship where I'm not honest about who I am. And she freaking did it. And it's why like how I experience it is then different people coming in and I just want to believe that they really love me. I want to believe that they're genuine when they're approaching me. Hey, I, 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 do you want to meet up? Do you want to go to lunch? And I just go, how many times do I have to be put through this where your religion makes you feel superior to me? And that's fine. I understand that your religion tells you that what happened to me was satanic and that I'm evil. I mean, people even took it to extremes. When I think back of early days, this girl who had literally just been cutting my hair, she was my hairdresser, told a bunch of people in Sydney that I sent her parents anti-Mormon literature, which I don't even believe that exists. That's just like truthful literature that talks openly and honestly about Joseph Smith having other wives, which he did, marrying other men's wives, which he did. And I mean, the level with which people to conform to their own beliefs will use you to make a story so their faith stays intact. So what I mean by that, the level with which she has gone in and thought, I don't even know her in-laws or her parents. The, the levels with which I would have had to go in to find their address, to care enough about her, to send her this church vilifying information, while I'm sitting there just marveling that I'm allowed to choose my own underwear and drink a coffee, you know, that's what I was really experiencing. It, it, it just, it's that it intertwines itself in with people that you actually just want to love and see deeply and be loved and seen deeply. And it makes that relationship a lot more complicated. So to your question, how I experienced that in my body, 
sounds like pain man that's mm-hmm. hard it's that's so pain. so so hard i'm like i'm i'm just sorry that that you went through that but i you know i it doesn't even really make sense i'm just happy to listen and and to to share that because that's that's really hard i totally know what that's like uh, not yeah. to the same extent that you had it i like that's that's much harder than what i went through but i i do understand even on a small way what that's like and i'm sure a lot of our listeners uh, who have gone through similar things will understand too i agree i know it will be resonant with people and it's just about giving voice to this experience it's not even about my experience or yours it's about that this is pervasive and common of jehovah's witnesses a lot of other religions when an event like this happens it feels so lonely and isolating but giving it voice and having people find that resonance you is where you really find that it's sadly common yeah yeah i've i've seen it even outside of religions it could even be with with different political views. I, there was one point where I was really left-wing and then I went really right-wing and then I was like, politics sucks. <laughs> <laughs> That's so true, actually. It's so funny how you... I love What I love about creating content too is that each person listening to this will hear it from a different angle. And these political times, I'm sure someone's going to resonate with how alone they feel in their family or their, their community for maybe feeling different politically and feeling isolated or misunderstood because of that and people treating them differently or having to endure family holidays, um, believing something different and the way that that can be, so divisive, but so profound that you would ask me how I experience that even in my body, because it is visceral and it is, um, traumatic. It's a trauma. I like right, right now when, when you're saying it, like the, the feeling that I get is I feel like this, like, uh, like a vice grip around my heart and it's, it's Mm. like, it's holding it together, but it's like, yeah, like it's really painful. And I, and it's just, I guess I, I don't know if I'm making that up or whatever. It's just what I'm feeling. So yeah. yeah. <laughs> well, and you mentioned anger. I think in just before it aired, mm-hmm. our conversation that was private. I think part of the pain of a moment like this too is that you are really angry. You feel yep. lied to. Yep. You feel used. You feel manipulated. You, of my whole life, you know, the last tithing check that I wrote out was for seven thousand dollars for a religion I now look at as a cult and look at as um, um, something that purposefully and calculatedly lied to me and used me. And there's no house for my anger at that because then that's the thing people latch on to oh you sound angry you sound bitter and it's this really nominalizing language that leaves things stuck in stone with nowhere to go because then that just puts you on the defense and then you're having to sit there and explain why something that is this major of a life event my marriage was now in trouble because mormons go to heaven as a couple so i woke up mormon had a chance phone call for three hours took off my secret underwear 
and left the church. And now I've got to tell my husband when he comes home from work that his option is to divorce me and remarry a Mormon, a believer, so he can go to heaven. And so he can also realize his earthly dreams because he was like cream rising to the top and everything he touched turned to gold and he was on the fast track for church leadership so all of his dreams are gone and these are his options and that's my option too even though i didn't buy this one i'm seeing completely through the illusion that none of this is contingent on our you know going to heaven but i know him as a believer this is what he's experiencing Mm. And it's real to him. And that means it's real in our marriage. And I'm not allowed to be angry. <laughs> at like, holy shit, you got me. You got me to make every major life decision according to a thinking I would then abandon. And it would be too late for me to be exempt from those consequences i now had major consequences that i needed to sort through and and i did i i i also mormons are shamed to work so i was 30 or 29 and uh got a job the next year when i was 30 for the first time my first real job out of college and knew doing that because i know it's looking like i'm gonna get divorced and now what I was shamed to work and told to follow a man and attach myself to a man. I was never supposed to financially support myself and other major things uh, like we regretted getting married as virgins. So we tried an open marriage to save it. And I should also lay down the context. I thought in that moment when I left that my husband and at least one sibling would leave with me. Neither one of them did. So I, I lived this entire year, first year doing all of these new things and talk about the polarity. It was like as much sadness, there was joy, yeah. and discovery and experimenting. Um, and the uh, next, the next year, my husband did leave. It was about 11 months. And so for those 11 months, I dreamed he would leave and that would fix everything. And this nightmare would be over, but instead it actually ruined everything <laughs> because him in his own authentic personality outside of what he was trying to be within a that culture and me going out into my authentic identity outside of this culture was not a match at all and it was just floating away from each other but we did try an open marriage to save it and that was hysterical (laughs) and definitely informs my worldview today about love monogamy marriage um middle life is funky right when you're um young like i was i was 21 when i got married nobody else is married now people are people have paid forged 10 years and 20 years of that and that becomes what it is to them and so i've had all kinds of experiences with that now but at the time it was me going through it um yeah i i i my husband slept with someone and yeah I heard that on your podcast. You have a really intense episode <laughs> where you where you not only talk about that, but you interview the woman that he slept with. 
If you're enjoying this episode, please support the podcast by subscribing and leaving a review and a comment. Now back to the episode. Yes, and that was the second one he slept with, which was at a time we were really rallying to save our marriage and that we're like, okay, let's kind of not do open marriage now. So it was a little bit more gray area and there was a lot of other things that were complicated to it. So I just eviscerated her by email and wanted to blame her for the breakdown of my marriage because I wasn't ready to take accountability. So yes, please go listen to that episode because it explores these themes in a I think a really unique and rare way to be interviewing her. But the first one that he did, um, he slept with her while I was on a trip to America, pretty much telling everyone my marriage was over. And I had just wanted to have this wild night of drunken sex with him because, you know, here we are two married virgins never having that experience. So I get home and I see this half drunk bottle of Shivas and I'm like, Mother effer, you got drunk and slept with somebody else, which he had. And um, in the moment, it was I was it was something that we'd been talking about and kind of dangling for a long time. And once it was not a hypothetical and it actually happened, I just immediately I just felt like a child. Like you went up and and me and you know something that I don't know now so I just had to do it I did it about 11 days later and that was its own whole like I know people who have been in a long-term marriage at this point I've been married nine and a half years I know anyone who goes through a divorce or is widowed has this feeling of like wait what do I do how do I how do I rejoin this but mine I think was amplified by never ever having experienced it in the first place how do I groom a situation to like sleep with someone and how do I even begin to process all of what that is and means to me but it was weird. It was out of body. I chose someone too hot. <laughs> Rookie mistake. <laughs> and it was just, it was really honestly just like in my head going, well, now I've seen two wieners. That's literally what I was thinking. <laughs> <laughs> Couldn't enjoy it. Couldn't like, uh, yeah, it, uh, there are some really interesting things about Mormons and sexuality. Um, I was going to ask, you kept you kept mentioning underwear. There's this theme of underwear, and I don't understand. Like, I'm out of the loop here. It, it, there's Sorry. something in Mormonism about underwear? Yeah, once you go through the temple, which men do, typically when they do their mission at 19, I think they just lowered the age to 18 now, to go do a two-year mission, you go through the temple which is different than a church. You'll see the churches and then you'll see the temples and anyone can go into a church, but um, a temple is kind of like a really interesting place to do rituals and um, big love showed. There's an episode. If you want to Google it, like what goes on inside the temple. And as somebody who's done that, I can corroborate that there were a couple of things that were like, "Mm, that's not exactly like that. But for the most part, It was exactly that. And from that point on in your life, you wear these underwear. You can also Google what they look like. You'll get a picture of Mitt and Ann Romney, which I think they've just superimposed the the heads on someone else's body. But that's what they look like. They have sleeves and they go to your knees and they're white. They have secret markings on them. And there's a lot of 
mean, to me, if I'm honest about what it's about, I think it's a, I call them secret, but Mormons would call them sacred. But to me, I won't use that language because it further perpetuates right. something that makes the it it makes the thinking it it validates it in a way that keeps people like me from being able to see the truth of their own self and it's it's that polarity i I, it's hard because i know that that's not how people in my life would want me to talk about it but Mm -hmm. that's my honest opinion that it's they're not sacred they're secret yeah. Yeah. And so they have markings on them. Is, mm-hmm. is that some sort of a chastity vow or something? That's kind of what I'm imagining in my head. Like what's written on there? Yeah, that's kind of an interesting way to put it. It is kind of a chastity vow in a way <laughs> um, because it represents the covenants that you're making in the temple. Mm-hmm. which chastity to your husband or to yourself if you're not married it is a part of it um, but to me again why I will also call them secret is I knew that there was something some big thing in the temple to be revealed and it was part of what kept me faithful in the secrecy of it through my formative years and when I actually went through it is kind of it's a two-hour ceremony it's kind of interesting and weird, kind of ritualistic, um, Masonic. I, I sort of went, that that was it? You know, this is these are the secrets? This is like what I give, gave my whole life for up to this point to learn these? And there was a lot of like, yeah, it seems really simple on its face, but it'll take you your whole life. So wait, what is the secret? Well, that I can't. What can be well, shared? What I reveal. This, <laughs> and Mormons. This is why I think there's so much intrigue about. Mormons. Will they kill you if you shared the secret? Yes. Dang. <laughs> yes, no. Are you serious? Okay. Well, I'll let me explain. There's a thing called Whoa. blood oaths, and these were in the temple um, ceremony until 1990, where you would mock your own death by slitting of your throat or oh my God. slitting your stomach to reveal them. So I did go in and promise I would never reveal. Now I don't really care. I've revealed it a lot of times to different people. Okay. I've never revealed it publicly on a podcast. No, I, I don't want to endanger your life. I'll Google no, it. It's no, okay. No, no. <laughs> people have been killed, but these were like more like the frontier times, like the Danites in the 1800s. But in 19, I went through in 2002, so I never did those blood oaths, but my parents did. And um, I had to ask my mom, like, I think I've asked her multiple times. I asked her initially when I left, like, mom, what was that like to be in the temple and mock your own death for revealing these things? So, um, it's interesting what she said. It's, it's, but, and I also understand like how you don't really process it that way. That's not really a question that you're asking yourself and it's kind of weird to be asked and it really kind of leads to a non-answer of just like keeping my faith is more important to me than, and you know, <laughs> holding a, a group that would do that to me accountable for that. 
But for me, obviously, outside of the love goggles, outside of the truth goggles, it's a total abuse of power and it's wrong. Of course. And it's important for me to um, talk about that. But the, what is actually revealed and what actually happens, that would be honestly a whole other podcast because it's a two-hour ceremony. And honestly, like what I could just intimate is you, again, are just so... My, my MO is curiosity. I went and took the right. BIA Institute character strengths profile. There's 24 character strengths. We all have them, but they're ordered differently. And mathematically, it's like a snowflake. You're a snowflake. You're one in a million. There's more ways in which they could be ordered than could ever possibly be people on this earth. So you should go do it. My number one, which I think is really interesting, number one is curiosity. And at first I was like, huh, because some of the strengths are just so like amazing and lovely and curiosity. But now I see it like this curiosity drove me and it's what kept me in it went through all of this weirdness. And so I was way so curious, but to tell it just plainly what the secrets are is just so silly and disappointing. It's almost like, it's not that I'm afraid I'm going to be killed, which I'm not, or that I'm going to have any kind of repercussions, which I'm besides my family relationships, I'm probably not, but they're, it's just like so dumb. Like it's just, it's like, it's a trick, you know? So it's that curiosity that anybody would have about a secret. And then what the, the secret actually is, is like, that was it. I'll, I'll tell here's a, here's a way to point it to you. You get a secret name as okay. well on that day that you go first. And I really believed this was like my name from Jesus. Like this is who, this is my soul name. Natalie, who fucking cares? This is like, who my soul really is, and this is her name. Oh, and are they normal names, or do they are they no, like elvish sounding names. or something? They're like biblical names, which I don't even know how they got enough names for women because there's almost no women named in the Bible. Ruth, but Mary, yeah. uh-huh. Ruth, Mary, 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 Ruth. <laughs> <laughs> exactly, and I'll, I'll it'll tie in when you when I tell you the rest of the story, which is as I'm sitting there thinking, this is like. Ooh, I'm going to know who I am. When I went in and I got my new name, what I realized is that everyone who was going through as a woman that day got the same name. And in fact, that name is just on the calendar. So I got married March 21st. So I, I went through the temple, I think five days before. So the name for whatever, March 15th, 16th, 17th, March 9th, March 18th, maybe, is that name. Do we get to know it or no? (laughs) (laughs) My best friend still won't tell me. Let's see. I don't actually care. I would tell you. I've told a lot of people. Would, would Would my family be so mad? I mean, what have I already said? That's, this, Natalie, this is about you. So this is not know, about me. If, if you want to have that liberation, you could do it here or on your own podcast. I think you need yeah. to do it. 
<laughs> I know. I've told a lot of people, like I said, my best friend who's been out for eight years still won't tell me hers. My husband would not tell me his, even though he knew mine. So the man always knows the woman's. But the woman doesn't know the man. He knew he's known from that day because there's a part in, in the ritual where he pulls me through the veil, which sort of like mock signifies my death and entry to heaven. So he calls me by that name. And so I, it isn't, it actually is not that it would, li- it won't liberate me to, to tell it. It will, it's actually about how I, have I fully processed it so that it could liberate me or will it like more temporarily okay. You'll know what like, to put do me then. in a prison, but you know what? Fuck it. The name was Rhoda. Rhoda. <laughs> I have a friend named Rhoda. <laughs> <laughs> now you have two friends named Rhoda. <laughs> I know it's so... my friend. My friend's name is Rada. It's it's really close. Okay, I guess it's Rada. slightly different. Okay, maybe I'll start going by Rada, mispronouncing it. I don't know. He's yeah, Egyptian, so... so I wonder if I wonder if that's like Egypt is pretty close to Israel. I don't know. I'm imagining again. Things. Where do they get the names? Because the temple's not open 365 days a year, but they would at least need what like 200, 250. Maybe even yeah, two seventy five. Where are wow. you going to get two hundred seventy five women's names? Well, I like Natalie better. Don't worry for you. For you, I'm, <laughs> I mean, I'm. You know, I'm just. I, I it's, always it's wanted strange, Tiffany man. or Amber, but that's because I was raised in the eighties. But now, thank God. <laughs> I wasn't named any of those things. Anyways, you can see through how like hard that was for me, though. No kidding. Why? Why these cultures? Why it um, goes on because it's easier to move forward than to reassess it and then start to undo the ball of yarn and ball of wax, whatever. Um, because shame and secrecy are such a big part of it. Yeah, And that is really hard to undo. And as much as I will speak honestly, and I will um, write books about this and talk about this on my podcast and on other podcasts, it's still not easy and it still has repercussions. Yeah, My people said to me, there's a real common trope, like you can leave the church, but you can't leave it alone about people. It's meant to make people like me small like we're fixating on this like we should just leave it and walk away and abandon it and be fine and not be angry and you know just like no don't you get it the church doesn't leave us alone yeah. you know it will never because my my family's in it it will never leave me alone and that's okay too like Am I, how, how much am I supposed to extricate myself from it and how much of it is so tightly woven with who I am because I was born into it and was an active believer for 29 years. Um, it's, it, it's me and it's mine. And I guess they get power by telling me I'm not supposed to speak about it and speak honestly about it or have my story as mine. They own it. It's theirs. But there's a chorus of voices of believers and people who trumpet their version of the truth and they want to silence people who have a different version that doesn't corroborate with theirs. 
and it's still really hard for me to not buy into that. Yeah. But for myself and my own healing and for people who could heal through me breaking through that, I I have to keep going. Yeah. And it is mine. Yeah, it's your story. Yeah. Don't don't ever let them tell you that it's not because like ultimately from your perspective, this is your world, this is your experience and you can create whatever universe you want. And if you respect them in your mind, then then they're powerful. And if you don't yeah. respect them, then they're not powerful. So you get to choose right. how much power they have. Well, and what we're not here to talk about, this isn't sour grapes. Yeah. This is just the truth. And like I said, and my version of the truth, and I respect other people's version of the truth. Yeah. And I think why it's been hard to speak about it honestly too, is in this codependent tendency that I think I absorbed through this. It's like other people's version of the truth are more important than mine. And so I assume people are doing that to themselves. And so I'm codependent and I don't want them to do that. So I'll just be quiet too. It's another way that it bleeds into it. But again, where we're going is where my worldview went. And none of that will make sense if we don't talk about the first 30 years of it and how I would have gotten there. So let me, let me address some of that of what was happening within my worldview. You know, you've got some of the events with the open marriage and questioning my marriage and how I'm trying to um, keep my marriage together and, and navigate this. But in my own mind, personally, I started going off into, okay, this isn't true. Holy shit, what is reality? And there was a real gravity to being lied to and being able to see like, we are so, so, um, what's the word for like vulnerable to uh, having people in power tell us self-serving lies that will get us to design our lives for their benefit, not ours. And that was really, really scary to adopt into my worldview. So there was that part. And then there was like, there is no God. I really did go to um, atheism. When we die, lights out. I also toyed with like mm, reality, like maybe if you're Mormon and you believe in these degrees of celestial, telestial, terrestrial kingdom, that when you die, that's true. If you're an atheist, lights out, that's true. And we're like, we're really creating our own realities after death. I went to some really dark places where I was like, Humans have nothing redeeming. We're disgusting, disease-ridden rodents overrunning the planet. We are terrible. We are bad. We're evil to each other. We are, um, we are a plague on this planet. This planet would be better without us. Thank God that was pretty short-lived because, well, part of that is true. <laughs> you know, if you can laugh at it and not have it be so dark, you know you've got to believe in the human spirit and the good parts of humanity. And I certainly do. And I think I was probably atheist for a good year and a half after that. Um, Sam Harris was one of the first people that I found. Nice. And when I could not trust my own brain through this up was down, black was white. I mean, this was literally like, I liken it to being out on a lake Um I'm having a great time in Mormonism, kind of, I'm, I'm um, 
maybe wakeboarding or water skiing. And then all of a sudden the rope detaches. And not only that, like I'm in the water and it goes tonight, the boat speeds off and it's dark. And I am like, holy fucking shit, like drowning. You know, that's what it actually felt like to lose my beliefs. And now I've got to like figure it out. But in that period, Sam Harris was someone whose brain I could trust implicitly the way that he can parse and um, crystallize concepts that are so important for us to understand. Um, Richard Dawkins, I found at that time, um, the big four, um, what's his name? Chris, uh, Chris Hitchens, is it? Hins- Hitchens, yes, exactly. To a lesser extent, but when, once you find one, you find them all, right? Because right. you start to go on YouTube and find different lectures that they've been a part of. Did you of find there. Darren Brown ever? I don't think I did. Oh, Darren Brown. So this, Wait, this is, Brown. he's a, he's a hypnotist. And as mm-hmm. soon as you know him, do I, does he have a Netflix show? No. Yeah. 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 Show. Yeah. No, no, he does. Yeah. Okay. Yeah. 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 So he, he Much was, later, I found him. I'm, he's the guy for me. Like, so the, you're Sam Harris. When I was coming out of Christianity, he, he had this book called trick of the mind. And the first chapter is a rant against Christianity. And then, and then after that, it shows you how your how your mind works and how easy it is to manipulate your mind, and it blew my mind. Uh, and so I I could totally relate. So, you know, even though these people don't have, like I mean, nobody has a fully encompassing view of the world. But I find the atheist perspective really useful as a sedative in a way. I don't know how to explain it. Like to bring your mind down from crazy into like material mundane reality so that you can just ground yourself get into a normal rhythm and then you can discover yourself from there so i really respect the atheist role of like the, the world view of atheism after the healing it played in my life i agree i think it's a lens you have to peer through. And I guess this is why it's so important to speak honestly about these things, because if you're born into a religion, again, when is the right time to completely fuck your whole life up, fuck your relationships up, possibly lose your job, possibly lose your marriage. You're not going to do that. There's no road out, but what's important in my values for humanity is to do that and pay those costs and then go try different ones out. And that's when you can understand yourself and humanity from a more broad spectrum. And so being able to peer, even if you don't need to leave your religion totally, if everyone would be willing to just peer through the lens of it as if it were true for a week. Yeah. Well, that's part of how I got out of Mormonism too. I started hearing it um, years before that event happened. I This would be an interesting thing. If you're not ready to do that, are you ready to go to your religion or whatever is your community that you're ingrained in that you were born into and start hearing it as if you were hearing it for the first time? So take out the familiar tone of it that you're used to hearing. Take out the confirmation bias that it conforms to your beliefs that you already have take out, you know, that it sounds normal because you've heard it a million times and start to hear it from the ear of someone who was hearing it for the first time. 
And if it sounds crazy, it just might be <laughs> that it is. And that was that was an alarming um, exercise that definitely led me out. And but it was worth it, <laughs> you know. So starting to apply different worldviews onto your own. Um, it is scary. I'm not even going to sugarcoat that, but it's really richly rewarding. That's why your podcast is going to be so amazing because people are going to be able to do that through hearing people's stories and worldviews and what people believe. And it's endlessly fascinating um, <clears throat> from those people and their different books or like I said, different YouTubes or podcasts that they were on. Of course, these people are all interested in psychedelics. So I got interested in psychedelics, which have made, you know, definitely impacted my worldview. As I told you on my Instagram, what is my caption? Something about like, we're all living our best lives inside someone's mushroom trip. Nice. The fact that someone could do DMT, you know, okay, so LSD is going to last times I've done it, 13 to 16 hours, mushrooms, maybe six to eight. The fact that if someone does DMT, the physical experience only lasts five to 20 minutes, but could feel like an entire lifetime in there. Have you heard of that? DMT. Yeah, I've heard of that. DMT? Yeah, I'm not convinced I'm not in some DMT trip right now. I'm yeah. not convinced when I go to sleep and I lose my waking consciousness that like yesterday didn't actually happen yesterday in linear time, but that I just imagined that it did. Like, don't you think about that sometimes? I, all, every day I think about that. <laughs> <laughs> this is my life. <laughs> so funny. I know. And I've thought of stuff like that since I was a kid. Like, I, when I was going through my divorce, leading up to my divorce, I was listening to a book on tape as I was driving to Mel from Melbourne to Adelaide with my kids. What was it? it was I, I loved Power of Now, Eckhart Tolle. Yeah. I don't think it was that though. I listened to that on that trip, majorly impactful for like the start of a spiritual awakening after atheism, which is not that necessarily spiritual. It's its own thing. I don't need to label it or quantify it. But when I'm talking spiritual, I'm talking like, woo, woo, which is where I am now. Energy, <laughs> you know, love and light. But um, it was a book. Uh, it might have been Albert, something, Albert Einstein's book. I can't remember what, some book, but Carl Sagan wrote the foreword, I think. And it was talking about, um, Stephen Hawking's dissertation in the 1960s about literally being able to quantify how you could bend time backward. And so the fact that we can prove these things or that, you know, reality as we know it probably has 11 dimensions, but we can only see three, like it really starts to go there honestly, literally anything is possible. Are we in a simulation? Are we in, um, am I in, am I in some kind of, um, my own drug trip that is meta? Like I'm, <laughs> I'm somewhere else having a drug trip, hallucinating this into, I don't know, you know, but it's not really, 
as we said at the beginning, this beginner's mindset is not root. Once you've concluded and seen how wrong that goes, especially when that conclusion drawn serves someone else's purposes way more than it ever serves you or humanity, I don't think you ever conclude ever again. You just go into what's possible. I, I haven't had TV for 10 years, maybe even 11 years now. Nice. But for, yes. Stop watching TV, but for times when I've been like short term in a living situation where maybe I had access to someone else's TV, I watched Hamilton's Pharmacopoeia on Viceland. Have you ever watched that? Oh, I, you know, I saw it. I just, I honestly did not want Vice to tell me anything to do with psychedelics. I do not trust them. <laughs> <laughs> I get it. I get it. Okay. But I get it. Okay. Vice is definitely just something to make fun of, but this guy, uh, what's his name? Hamilton something. And he's the son of filmmakers. And I found the Viceland TV much different than like following Vice on Facebook for their news of really just getting some stupid article and then going to the comments where everyone's just making fun of the articles and it's just about having popcorn <laughs> and reading the comments. But no, this was where he goes in and um, goes into what the makeup of each drug is, how it's made, why it's illegal, how it's being made because it's illegal, what different ramifications that has. And then he goes and he does them. So he went and did not just DMT, 5-MeO-DMT. Yeah, I have. DMT from the toad. (laughs) And um, peyote, which I'm going to do next month. As you know, I'm going through ONAC of Utah. Um, This will be my first drug experience or medicinal experience, I should say, um, which is something I've really been seeking in a more shamanic sense of being guided. The two times I've done LSD, I was on my own. Once I've done mushrooms, I was alone. Like that's kind of nuts. But this um, experience, it's a women's retreat of eight people eight women who were going to do breath work, which I'm super excited about too, because I know that we have the receptors within our brains to alter our realities temporarily through a substance, but we don't, we don't have the ability to produce all of them, but we do have the ability, I think, to induce a hallucinogenic experience through ourselves, through breath. I've never done that either. Yeah. Holotropic breathing. Yes. So the breath and then the, um, uh, the, the peyote medicine experience is what I'm going to do next month. So I've never done something like that, but the LSD and the mushrooms, I've done ketamine, I've done ecstasy, um, cocaine, which doesn't doesn't really (laughs) alter your worldview. You just feel like the queen of the world for two hours. (laughs) Um, but yeah, I would love to have done a ketamine trial through Pros Health Sciences, which is right down the road, but I have some, um, health, I have a congenital heart defect. So while I could have been able to go and do ketamine, which I love ketamine, paid, been paid $6,000 to go do a drug trial because they're trying these out for, you know, PTSD and, and, um, trauma. Um, but they, I'm not eligible, but if you're in Salt Lake city or somewhere else where they do these drug trials, look it up because I think that would be an amazing experience and get paid for it. Are you kidding me? You know, that's, that's amazing. Have you done ketamine? 
You know, I haven't done ketamine personally. My girlfriend has done a lot of that back in the day. And, and that was one of the reasons that she always was spiritual, even through mm-hmm. her darkest days was because of ketamine. So, I, you know, I, I haven't done it. I've been focusing more on DMT and some of the more natural options and, and a little bit of acid. But, yeah. Have you done DMT? Yeah, I've. You have. I wonder what I could. I, there's the man. I they can't. I don't know what I can say, but but I'll say yeah, a lot. So we'll just go with that. <laughs> I'm kind of scared for that one. I want to do it, um, and the impetus, as always, for any of these, was curiosity, healing. Um, personal journey, spirituality, um, what is real? I, I'll never stop wondering what is real. That is my worldview. So you're, you're less afraid to do DMT than like mushrooms and acid and ketamine. No, I'm more afraid. Did I say that wrong? Yeah, that's sorry. That's what I meant. You're, you're more afraid to do DMT. Yeah. Yeah, I am. But it's so short. I know, but what if it feels like a whole lifetime? Like physically, yeah, it's short, but I, I don't know. I, that doesn't I, happen to everyone. I think it's got to be done. You've got to find the right way to do it, right? Because someone really needs to caretake you in your physical body mm-hmm. while that experience is happening. Because when you do LSD or acid, your, um, your mind is very altered, but you're walking around. You're feeding yourself. You're, you know, I've taken a shower. I've gone outside and gone and walk in nature. When you do DMT, you are gone. Like you're laying on the ground. Your your faculties are removed and you're fully within the trip. Mm -hmm. And so someone is there with your body and needs to make sure you're okay. And I think maybe, maybe it's a control thing. You know, when you take um, XC and there's that moment of like, oh, oh, here we go, strap on in, like it's taken over. You know, I think a lot of people, when I'm talking to them about these experiences, it's, it's that submission of control. So maybe there's a control element that I haven't totally resolved and uh, fear of like mushrooms, like um, acid, like any psychedelic, there's the potential for it to, um, be a bad trip, I guess is what they call it, but have a lot of negative experiences and emotion. I think I'm more okay with that now mm-hmm. than I w- have been in the past. Um, welcoming those taking those as like what needs to come up. And even if the the experience is unpleasant to welcome it, greet it, take it as healing, take what is brought up as what is for me. Um, I think I'm probably more, more healed um, in that, in that regard than I have been. And, and more ready, but they really, they really call to you and they call to you, right? Yeah. How this peyote thing ended up, I, that's an experience and ayahuasca that I've been seeking as the next ones to actually really do. Maybe it's common that people kind of think about it or noodle around for a few years and then somehow serendipitously the experience arrives on their plate to actually do. 
Um, I sat next to a woman from who's part of a Native, Amer Native American tribe that brings this into the communities to share within as Native Americans and, and then the broader community. And so she set me up with the, with the group and this women's retreat was on in a month. And so might that experience happen for me with DMT? All of a sudden, there's some way in which tangibly it arrives and it just resonates and feels right that, okay, it's DMT o'clock. Let's do it. Yep. Yeah, it, it might happen. But there's a lot of factors for me for that one of like, who's there? What's happening? You know, you got it. You need to, these, these are not things to just do for silly fun. Some of them are, a little bit more recreational. All of them, for me, I would say, they're, if you're taking a spiritual element to them, even doing ecstasy, it depletes your brain chemicals. So there's a time where you don't want to do that. You want to do it, and then you want to let your brain chemicals re regenerate. And so I say this because my point is that drugs and dare and the whole program of like drugs will ruin your life and the war on drugs and these are all addictive while i never want to make light of true drug addiction i think having an honest conversation about these mm -hmm. also is talking about um using these medicinally is an experience that you take very seriously but it is not it's not what they told us taking drugs was like not at all like that Th those are myths spread by big pharma cartels because they don't like competition <laughs> I agree. that's how i say it. but i, I also want to say always have a trip sitter whether you're doing mushrooms or acid or dmt always 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 have a trip sitter that you you know you trust and that you love um somebody who will be sending you good intentions uh, and then always have a positive set and setting one that you're happy to to you feel relaxed and comfortable in and also go in with an intention uh, and i'm saying this for everybody who might be listening as well natalie because it's it's so so crucial when you're working with these powerful powerful ancient medicines that you use them in a sacred way uh, because they like i i've had tons of bad trips and i know what that's like so <laughs> I will, I, I'm better for it, but yeah. if it wasn't for having people around me um, to mm -hmm. support me during those experiences, I, I would have made things a lot worse for myself. Absolutely. Thank you for yeah. saying that. And I agree. The time I took mushrooms alone, I just texted someone and said, oh, I just took mushrooms. Luckily, I didn't take enough that I even really tripped out. I just had that fun thing where you laugh, but I just was like, God, you dumb shit. What are you doing? And then, of course, did LSD twice alone. What the hell is it doing? <laughs> I know it's so dumb. I actually had a really good experience. Like, talk about um, it. I, I took it really late at night, just kind of on a whim. Dumb again, what not to do? But um, I luckily, was blessed with a really fun experience. Anyway, I this was actually now that I think about it, I've taken it three times. This was the second time. Um, my I I kind of fell asleep as it was like activating in the period of from like taking it from when it was active and then I came to 
and I was laying on the ground and my ceiling just started being full of like lights and colors and different stuff. And I just walked into my room and my, I have a floor to length mirror and there was a thumbprint that morphed into this beautiful woman who was pregnant and breathing like the breath of all of humanity. And I just like watched her undulate and move and it was so beautiful. And then my bed started breathing. My clothes in my closet were breathing. And um, just different different stuff like that. My, I'll have just, you're connect, like you're connecting different thoughts in your mind that you could almost never articulate in this reality that just feels so profound and deep when you're in it. And you take them with you, but they're just, I don't know, like almost not relevant on this plane. Similarly, I saw the room split into like four quadrants of different reality and one was underwater and the rest weren't. Like what I know, I don't even know why I'm like, why that would happen or what significance that has, but it was just really cool to experience. The first time I did it actually as well, I had some fun stuff. Um, I, I looked out the window and I had a timber fence out my sliding glass door and the slats turned into Native American. Like this slat was a Native American and this was a Native American. And they were, or First Nation as you would call it, um, they were kissing in this like really beautiful kiss. And then they turned this way and they turned into horse faces and the horses just had this really loving natural energy and then back to kissing Native Americans and then this way. And um, I got hungry and I luckily had some soup I'd made. So I heated it up and I came to in like a trance with like my face inside the bowl, <laughs> looking at it so closely because I could see every particle of the soup like and it said to me in that moment of like the way we are as people like we really are you know they say we are one because I could see every particle but then as you pull the soup back out it's one as a soup but then you pull back in and it's individual particles, I was just like, whoa, you know, mind blown, you know, we are one. Um, what else did I experience and feel on any of those? I, I know even though the mushrooms didn't totally, weren't hallucinogenic that time, and I've done them subsequently, and they were, and had some really beautiful experiences, um, I did have that lingering sense of wonder for weeks after that they say you're supposed to have. I hopped on Google and like, what's going to happen to me, you know, alone as they're like activating. And it said, you'll have a sense of wonder, like be journaling. You'll have a sense of wonder possibly in the last weeks. I totally did. Which the intention at that time that I had taken them was that I really felt like I was hiding something from myself that I needed some kind of substance to break through the layers of self-deception that I had put over myself so that I could get deeper into this truth about my purpose. Honestly, about a lot of stuff like this, like the, the lies I'm telling myself that love is conditional and that by living my life in a truthful way, people's relationships are contingent on me not telling that truth and staying small just different stuff like that were 
totally instrumental in, you can tell that they're still there. It's not like it heals it, but that I could feel them in a stronger sense than I have them now. And I wanted to see through that illusion because it is an illusion, but lots of people have benefited in us all buying into it. So we have, and I, old habits die hard, man. So I wanted to ask you about how this fits in chronologically. There's so many exciting moments that you've talked about here, but to me, it's not really clear when you started doing the psychedelics and like, were you in, is this at the same time as you're exploring an open relationship? Mm. And oh, then, good. That's, thanks for asking. Yeah. I had always dreamed of doing these things when I was coming of age, I think is when ecstasy was really hitting Utah and people were doing it when I was like 18 and 19. I wanted to do those things. I also wanted to drink coffee, which you're not allowed as Mormon. Did you know that? So I also, (laughs) I went to a bar for the first time when I was 30 and um, I'm 39 now, obviously, because I said this was 10 years ago and um, that my apostasy happened when I was 29. Um, And yeah, you couldn't even drink coffee or tea so I wanted to have some of these experiences with my husband within my marriage the first thing I did try was marijuana we smoked together that's kind of a fun and funny memory how was it I don't what's that how was it how was your first time smoking marijuana um I, I don't really remember. What's so funny now is like, I'm one of those paranoid weed people. I'm not yeah, ever too. allowed to do it again, <laughs> but I don't, I think we, I didn't know. We drank quite a bit of wine and then we smoked it. So I, and I was so new into feeling like what alcohol even felt like in the first place. Like I kind of remember just falling asleep because it was really sleepy. But now, I mean, my colleague gave me a vape weed pen a couple of years ago and I thought it needed to get hot. So I'm like sitting there puffing and puffing and puffing. It's not getting hot. I know. Next thing I know, I am drinking tea like I am right now. And I look down in the tea bag and all the little tea particles are sta- are just stationary, sitting still. But one is going boop, 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 moving. <laughs> and, oh, doggy's loving this story. And it blew my mind so hard. I was like, and now I call 911. Like, this, somebody needs to know, this tea particle is wild and out. And <laughs> somebody needs to help. Like, this is not normal. And so I, I've done weed a couple times since then and same thing like the last time I did it was like I just looked out the window at the leaves of the trees for two hours just like trying not to have a panic attack that's why I like ketamine to me ketamine is like what weed should be it's like to me what it does is like activates this part in your body where your body is awake but your mind is kind of quieted and in this really good place so there's no like lethargy or like um feeling low but you're just feeling really relaxed and sort of everything's funny but weed itself doesn't do that to me but back to your question chronologically that's I think the only thing we did together and I was really seeking these experiences really seeking a group of friends who could have I could have these experiences with my husband and I oh actually we did do we, we did a camper van trip to New Zealand to save our marriage for three months 
right before we divorced didn't work, but they have these like hemp shops and I bought some mushrooms there that we did. And it was a horrible experience because we were really on like the last fumes of our marriage. We really were going to separate within like one or two months when we got back to Sydney and, um, it was just not, it was a good time in our friendship, but it was not a good time in our sexual marriage relationship. So we took them. He like, I think tried to initiate sex and then I rejected him. And the whole trip was just like, I don't know what it's been like when you've had a bad trip, but the times I've had a bad trip, it's not that I'm seeing like scary monsters or clowns or hallucinating scary things. It's that I feel like a weight, like a blackness, like a holy fucking shit. I hate this feeling. I hate it. I want this to be done. I am done with this, but it's not done with me. So that's what happened. And we both did it. We were both bad tripping in the camper van, just like the weight, I think of our marriage collapsing and it really being over. It was like a, a trip, but like a allegory for that. And just living it in this drug hallucination was horrible. So those are the only things we did together. And then, and something about that was just like, maybe because I bought it legally in a hemp shop, it didn't really, it was like, like the candy land, you know, get a little kid doing drugs or something. It wasn't medicine. It wasn't, you know, to me legitimate. But now when I look back and I've done mushrooms since like, Oh, those were real mushrooms. <laughs> that I put in a hemp shop. Um, but, uh, yeah, I did find this friend group that I loved in Sydney when I first got back to, um, Australia from New Zealand and, I had been living in Melbourne, so this was an interstate move and all new friends. And I had lived in Sydney before as a Mormon. Now I came back divorced in my own, you know, left the church two years before. And this group was maybe a little bit more for like the fun and recreation of like, we've had our kids, our kids are a little bit grown. We've been in this baby stage all these years. And now we're going to like return to what we were in when we were younger and sort of explore that now. So it was a lot more cocaine and, um, Coke and pills, a lot of Coke and pills. And it was not, you know, that can be fun too. Like I will say the fun of cocaine is like bonding, like going to the girl's bathroom. It's just you're all in on it together and you do it. And then you feel that immediate like rush of a high and then you're like hugging each other. Or this one time I met this new friend. I was actually friends with her. Um, they weren't married, but her partner, was one of my work colleagues and I met her for the first time and we're just all hitting it off and he's brought some Coke and we take it into the girl's bathroom. I just met her and we are racking it up and where there was an automatic hand dryer that we set off and we, the hand dryer blew like $300 worth of cocaine. <laughs> and I know, I know. So something like that to me is just like, I mean, we were, we'd already had a line and we had had some drinks. So the gravity of the situation is just not hitting us. And we're just laughing our freaking heads off at this experience. So in that way, it's bonding. But is it medicine? No. Is it exploratory beyond certain very shallow limits? No. But 
I liked it. It was fun. Do I need to do it again? Probably not. Will it probably find me again? Probably. <laughs> but um, yeah, from there, um, I just didn't have, where do you find it? Where do you, you know, how do you do it? I don't think I, I really found it at all in Australia in those years. There was three more years I was there. And it wasn't until I got back to America five years ago. Um, hysterically enough, I drove a friend. <laughs> he needed a ride from Salt Lake to LA and he paid me in mushrooms, which he didn't need to do. But, you know, one of those like college things of like gas money, like, let me give you a little something. So here's some mushrooms. So that's where I got those. And I did those for the first time, I think about three and a half years ago or four and a half years ago. And that was sort of my first and the, and the, the first LSD I got um, <laughs> at a rave. I love techno. I only listen to techno. I pretty much only listen to music without words because I'm not going to repeat other people's mantras. The subconscious mind is a big part of my worldview. So I was at a rave and someone just went, they were smoking a joint out of a, uh, uh, what's the word for marijuana? A thing you smoke a marijuana out of. Uh, she was smoking it out of an apple. What's the word for? Oh, it? A like, bong. A bong. Yeah. Oh, sorry. <laughs> yeah, yeah. I'm sorry. I forget the word. And just went, hey, you want this? And I said, what is it? They're like, yeah, it's acid. And it was just um, uh, on a sweet tart, which, which I had that twice. Like they've made it liquid and put it on a sweet tart. So that was the one. Again, didn't necessarily do it by myself because I was at the rave. Well, pretty much soon after left the rave, and that's when I started having the my wooden fence with the Native Americans kissing and yeah. And then the most recent time I did that, um, did LSD was about a year ago. So that one, um, yeah, I, I'm much more interested, I think in where I'm going with it, with these, the peyote and maybe experiencing ayahuasca. Have you done ayahuasca? Yeah. Yeah. There's a, a, a woman that is, is such a good, a good friend of our, of our family now who leads these amazing ayahuasca ceremonies and she is from Mexico mm -hmm. and then finds authentic shamans and brings them up. And then recently she trained herself and uh, she's done, she's done ayahuasca like 350 times. Wow. So like she's, she's very qualified <laughs> and she has a big heart, which is an even bigger qualifier. So I've, I've been so blessed with the universe providing me all of the medicine that I need. And I'm a big believer in just putting out your intention when you need these medicines, just putting out your intention and it will find you. Mm -hmm. So how did you, how did you get to the point where you, you started doing them more spiritually? Cause they, before they just sort of found you, um, what made you decide to like go out and look for peyote and, and now ayahuasca? I started having a spiritual awakening after the atheism portion, maybe about four years ago as well. Um, I just started seeing a lot of synchronicity. I started really I, maybe stepping into the seeker energy of like, this wasn't a loss of like a goodbye of like a fuck you to my tribe and my tribe of origin. This was seeking the whole time seeking for wisdom, seeking for truth, seeking for answers, seeking for um, 
what's the point of life and what what is real like i said which is a question that runs in my head and you start to maybe i think it's like bumper bumper bowling lanes or like training wheels you'll sort of find the how do i say this where it's not like low-hanging fruit but like uh, spirituality for dummies, <laughs> you know, you start to find those kind of gurus and they are in, an important part of your journey of like, if, you, if you've got to continue the unlearning process, you've got to find those people who facilitate that from the ground up at the base at the beginning. So I have found Gabby Bernstein first. I did her spirit junkie masterclass. Um, it's kind of funny how like some of the people that you initially find and you outgrow, like you really quickly don't resonate with their message anymore. Um, but I think, yeah, it just evolved into where if that's your guiding light, all the, the medicine is going to find you at the right time. The books are going to find you at the right time. People who I've heard on podcasts say stuff like they were in a bookstore and the book fell off the shelf and opened itself. Like I thought that was crazy, but that actually totally happened to me. And one of those books was sacred contracts, Caroline Mace. Have you, I haven't read, read that, that one. one. That, is an important one to talk about the shape my worldview. Now she's very like Carl Jungian, all of the thoughts that have ever been thought on the earth are still inhabiting the earth and swirling around and they can inhabit us and then leave. And what she says we are made of, because I was kind of going, okay, I've been toying around with this as a worldview for like a few years. We're one third human and that human will die. Natalie has never lived, never will again. One third God force energy and then one third soul of like our the individual part of ourself that lives on. I don't know. That was an interesting thing to try on. Hers that she puts forth is that we are made up of 12 different archetypes and four of them are universal meaning we have all of them we all have all of them and then there's a library of about 300 and we're made up about of about eight of individual of those so for example those in the library of what you could be is like the advocate the wounded healer the priestess the king um there's there's different ones obviously that inform people who are deceptive people who the advocate is people who go on to be a lawyer because that energy of advocating people is alive within them and is their guiding light. So it kind of makes a lot of sense. And it's again, like atheism, the book is totally worth a read to try this on this worldview. This is interesting. Does this resonate with me? It at least kind of makes some compelling sense. But what's so interesting about the universal one, one is the inner child and it has subcategories. So all of us have an inner child. That makes total sense. All of us have the prostitute archetype. What a fascinating universal archetype. And so I love this archetype. Can you, can you teach me a bit about that one? My, my sense from that is that that would be one that just wants to connect and with anything and everything. Is, is that how you would describe it? Interesting. That's an interesting lens to view it through. What she says it is, is an energy that is within you, that is with you in the deals you make. 
And are you making dirty deals? Are you betraying yourself? And the prostitute archetype will kind of get you to betray yourself. But the exciting thing is once you transcend the prostitute archetype, it then becomes a guide and you won't be making those deals. And this, I think, is where I'm going in my purpose, frankly, of talking about all of this stuff and how we live. Because, again, as you pointed out, my work is very with women and and female-driven. We live in this man's world where the men have the money, the men have the power, 2% of the world's CEOs are women. So we we slap this punitive label on women as prostitutes doing what they need to do to survive in this world and to survive the, the constructs of the world and the way the world is made up. But what about the people who are the real prostitutes who when they make dirty deals that betray themselves, betray us all? Big Pharma big oil, uh, different people in our governments. To me, that's where I'm going and with my work in the future is talking about the prostitute archetype because we really are all prostitutes, but we just want to, we just want to label that label on a few people. And it obfuscates the truth of what that energy actually is. And again, I think it's part of the systematic numb the masses, keep them believing in these tropes so that they don't see things clearly. And so long as they're not seeing clear things clearly, we will betray their interests for our own purposes. So I think it's actually really, really fascinating. I always forget what the other two universal ones are, but again, you go read the book and then it, it goes through and gives you different um, ideas from movies of where the she's seen the 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 um, archetype alive within the premise of the movie or the character and then there's different tests so it's a, like an interesting personality test if you want to do it of like okay well if this is true what archetypes would you be and Caroline Mace is one of Oprah's spiritual advisors she has a few other books that are out I almost can't believe this book isn't more popular or known because it's really fascinating read but um that is someone had mentioned this book to me and the prostitute archetype and that book found me at a bookstore and opened itself to that page <laughs> and to me as i've as i've sort of gelled with like okay what really is my message what really is the benefit to talking about these things that as i said is where i feel totally aligned with my purpose that and having uh doing a podcast of where i really explore different themes about mormonism the story and weaving it within the humanity of how these things bleed out into consequences what are the sexual consequences to a very sexually obsessed sexually repressed religion for these people and interviewing them and intertwining it, but people always bring it back to my relationships. And so I don't know how I would ever possibly make this happen, but I think it would be amazing to go do a healing with my family. (laughs) And maybe they would do a breathwork one because then they wouldn't have to take one in, but we somehow like get inebriated in some way and then just really find 
some way to talk at really deep levels about our family and how this has all impacted us. You would like yeah. this other one for your family. It's, it, I can't remember exactly what it's called, but it's something like Lucia Lighthouse or something like that. Mm-hmm. And it works with a strobing light and you close your eyes and it actually creates a psychedelic experience just by a light flashing on you. So Interesting. it doesn't, you wouldn't, like you don't take anything. But but by the end of it, like when I did it, my heart was so open after. I was like, oh my God, I love all you people who are running this. <laughs> Hugging them and like, oh, I need to hug you. <laughs> it, was, oh, it was like really intense, a uh, heart opening experience and really like beautiful artwork of just colors. Thank you for telling mind. me that and yeah. our, and anyone listening, because I think that's that might be definitely a serendipitous something that aligns and calls to me and converges lucia lighthouse yeah i you know i'm gonna i'm gonna look it up show notes yeah yeah i'm gonna look it up and put in the show notes because it's it's really important it i had such a profound experience with it but there's a bunch of these things like there's a bunch Mm -hmm. of things where you can have psychedelic type experiences another one that I haven't done, but is on my to-do list is a dark room and your, your pineal gland produces DMT. So if you're, it produces melatonin most of the time, but if you're not in any light whatsoever for four days, it starts producing DMT. So you can just hang out in a cave or wonder why all these people are going to caves, uh, the, the monks and stuff, but you can hang out in a cave or a really dark space and there are retreats that will help feed you and, take care of you during this time and then you can go for a week or two and you're just like completely natural high on your own dmt supply (laughs) that's super interesting i'm wondering about the breath work too because and it's i'm i'm glad you mentioned that because it made me think of joe dispenza Mm -hmm. who we haven't covered yet and there's a part i think it's in becoming supernatural his book loved that book that was probably one of the most transformational books i've ever read and loved joe dispenza's work but he's he describes this exercise in one of them i think it's that one or it could be breaking the habit of being yourself, which I've also read on audio around the same time, or I don't think it's in Evolve Your Brain, but um, he, did you read that book? Have have you read that? I haven't read Joe Dispenza. It's, you know, there's so many great people. He's on my list, but I haven't read him yet. I think you'll like him, but there's a part where he's describing a breath work. Um, you know, the pineal gland is on the cover of his book. You don't notice it at first until he, he, um, mentions in the book what it's meant to do. And it's got these, it looks like a pine cone and it's got these interweaving circular things going around. And he said why he chose that for the cover of the book is because the way that that pine cone in your pineal gland is sitting, there's a tube connecting it to it that a certain way you hold your neck and do different breath work, you can draw this stuff up the tube that breaks the seal and the pineal gland opens and he's done it. So he des- yes, he describes it in his book. And that's what I'm wondering if some of the breath work that maybe I'll even do or that I might encounter in the future is going to do or is going to illuminate how to do that or that's what it is doing. Through the breath work, you are drawing that whatever it is that you draw up the tube into the thing where it breaks the gland open. This reminds me of the... 
uh, it, the Vatican, they have like this giant pine cone in the middle of one of their sacred areas. And you'd think, you know, why isn't it Christ? Why isn't Jesus there? But no, it's a pine cone. And then if, if you look at, oh, there's there's so many ancient cultures that have these pine cones that are, are in different places in, in very sacred ways, uh, sometimes on the top of scepters. I think there's even a... yeah. A Vatican one like that. Catholic I think one. Joe Dispenza's is on top of a scepter. Yeah. Pine cone on top of it. The <laughs> scepter is the tube. Yeah, exactly. Exactly. <laughs> We're figuring yeah. life out right now, Natalie. I know. Illuminati. <laughs> no, seriously. And I, I know that's what draws me to DMT. The fact that uh, apparently they say either way, doesn't it break open when you die or something? Yeah. Which is why a lot of near-death experiences have similar themes because it's possible that they were just high on the DMT that was released. From- and when you're born. Did you know? Actually, not even born. Ooh. It's at, um, I think it's 49 days. So that's... Before you're born. Well, as a fetus, like a 49... At, oh. As a, as a fetus, there is a point where you have a a DMT trip. So I don't know what that's like. There's all sorts of political repercussions, I'm sure, for going too deep into that. Oh, that's <laughs> but but it's it's just interesting. That's just a really interesting fact. So I don't I know what you make of that. it. <laughs> that's really interesting. And I'm into all of that kind of stuff. Like all of like what based your worldview or made your subconscious program, which is like 95% of your life. In my, that's part of my worldview too now after Joe Dispenza. There's all of that program is made in parts that memories you won't even remember or understand that you're processing something a certain way. But your program is being written from, yes, before you were born in when you're in the womb and all through your infancy of which you're not really even conscious of you're in like status brainwave state until you're like seven or eight highly suggestible your brain is a tape recorder it's recording everything and then it's just playing out situations on a loop so to me it's like this 95 percent program and then that five percent of it that's so much less powerful than the programming computer of the 95% that's con that's subconscious. The conscious part to me is literally just the witness of the program playing. Yeah. I have a theory that, and I, I don't know if I've, I think this is an amalgamation of a ton of things I've read and my own experience, but I, I think that the conscious mind is like a single processing unit on a computer. Like it, it could just do like one thing and your subconscious mind is like a cloud network of supercomputers. Mm-hmm. So whenever I want to learn anything at all, anything, I just point this silly single, single processing unit. I just point it at the thing that I want to learn about. And then I just wait with my attention on it, transfixed. And then my subconscious just teaches me all about this this thing and it it it's not i'm not good enough to the point where i'm like able to you know like solve a big math equation like that but i learn so much about myself when i focus on things or i'll learn so much about um, e- like even different skills that i'm learning like very pragmatic skills like uh, even something as simple as like using photoshop or something like it's it's really interesting so 
I highly recommend trying that out using your 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 conscious mind to point your subconscious superpower computer. <laughs> mm-hmm. So true. I do it in a different way, like falling asleep to meditations because my brain is in a highly suggestible state. In the, because I don't, you must be amazing to be able to do that in the day waking of like beta or alpha brainwave states to like get your brain to absorb it. But maybe, maybe it's not as hard as I'm making it out to me. Maybe I'll try it. That's really interesting. Do you have a meditation practice at all? Not totally consistent. And I need to be, because I know like I'll get to this place where my program is wilding out and not optimized and I might be feeling certain more anxious than usual. And then I'll calm it all back down with consistency of like journaling meditation. I've tried all kinds from like TM to um, guided meditations are really good. I liked some of Joe Dispenza's guided meditations. He's got this one that's super weird, but he explains why it works for 20 minutes you're kind of doing like a yoga nidra style like body scan of like feeling the space inside your nostril feeling the space in the back of your throat and it he kind of talks long and weird and he goes into like why he goes feel the back of your throat it's super weird like when i send it to people they're like the fuck but um there's a point to what state that's putting you in that then he takes you to the unified field of possibility, which I love thinking about that, like fields of infinite potentials, time collapsing in on itself, like multi levels of the past, present and future being alive on different dimensions right now. Or like you have this real intention for this certain thing to happen that you're manifesting or whatever, going to the unified field. But what's really fun in this practice is you also bring an intention of something you want to surrender back to the field as energy. So think about bringing a habit or something thing, surrendering it to the field, and then coming with an intention of what you want to ask from the unified field of information where all potentials exist in mathematical probabilities. (laughs) And then you, it's, it's, that all maybe sounds super freaky or weird. I mean, probably not to somebody listening to this podcast sounds super normal maybe, but um, it actually ends up really heart centered, like to the point you would probably cry. Like you're, you're ending in love. You're holding your heart. You're thanking the universe for different things. And that one is really, that one's called you are the placebo. There's two versions of it and you can buy it. Um, you can buy it through him where I, I bought it through audible and you can, he still sells them on like live CD, <laughs> I guess for some of, some people still use that, but um, yeah, those ones are interesting. What else? I, I, I follow a uh, rising higher meditation on um, YouTube. I'm falling asleep to hers every night. Cause she's got different ones that are eight hours. Um, I love Kelly Howell's guided meditations. Um, the universal mind meditation. Have you ever heard that one? I haven't. It's really good. Yeah. Her voice is like that of an angel. And, um, that's a really interesting 
meditation she put together with like ancient texts and stuff. Um, what else do I use? Just even sometimes it's so overwhelming for me to think, especially if I'm already to a state of like anxious about something. Um, the thought of like quieting my mind for 20 minutes, I've got a lot more peace of like, you could really just meditate in one minute. Yeah, exactly. Or one breath. Yes. Yeah. So I'm doing that a lot more through the day, grounding in, plugging in. I mean, it really is somebody likened it to what, like a toaster, like all this efforting to toast the bread. And if it's not plugged in, which is the function that meditation is serving, like you're just out there efforting in the world. If you've plugged in, then you're, you're, you know, it it gives back more time than it takes, even though some of us are overwhelmed about the time of like I think the conditioning is so pervasive, right? Of how uh, almost um, um, indulgent that is to just take this time for myself. I know that's part of like the egoic function where the ego wants to keep that story running in my head rather than me being my highest version, you know, don't, don't become that highest version. Stay here where it's safe. You know, those are, that's much more what, I overcome or I'm trying to overcome to get my practice consistent, which I think a lot of people probably do. You'll travel farther faster if you take time to rest. So Mm -hmm. just, just keep that in mind. There's, um, I put out a video on YouTube recently about Nikola Tesla versus Thomas Edison and and alternating current versus direct current which is at Edison created direct current and direct current just keeps going at the exact same frequency and doesn't change at all. And, and it's kind of like a hyper masculine energy of just trying and trying and trying and trying and never stopping. And then Nikola Tesla's sometimes it it's like at a positive polarity, sometimes it's negative and it's flipping between these two states of balance. And sometimes it's traveling further away from its destination, but overall that helps it get there faster. So just mm-hmm. keeping that in mind, and that's that's why I highly, highly recommend having a meditation practice or any sort of mindful practice or even, even something simple like uh, just getting up and, and having gratitude, just tapping into your heart, you know? So mm-hmm. it's good that you're doing it though. Like you, you're, you're coming up with some really cool stuff. Like with Joe Dispenza's one, that was blowing my mind. Just listening to it. I need to check that out. You will love it. His work is the most practical application for one, but the most succinct blending of the scientific and spiritual to my mind. Yeah. Of how, like sometimes it's just like an esoteric concept, right? But what does that really have to do with how I live my life day to day? His is the full picture of all of that and the way he's able to explain it and marry it with story, personal stories. I, I've got the book physically, but I found the audiobook just for me, for the way I, it's so deep and several people who have followed up on, you know, if I've suggested reading it and they have like, holy, I had to read it like three times to get it to absorb. I found that too. Like it was just so mind blowing that I just couldn't for however I'm built, read it. I had to hear it. And the audio narrator of that one and 
I think breaking the habit of being more yourself are really, 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 the narrator is fantastic. It's important so, to have a good narrator. I know it is because his other book doesn't, I don't like the narrator and I'm struggling. You just can't listen it. to it. You can't listen to it. You can't observe it. <laughs> yeah, I know. Exactly. Can you tell me a bit about your worldview right now? It seems like you you do something like what I do, right? I flip through a bunch of them and I don't even have a, one I operate by. I actually operate with like three different ones. So I'm just curious, what are the primary worldview or worldviews that you use to go through reaching your goals now and for handling some of life's curveballs what do you mm-hmm. what do you use i i think we are aligned and i think what i do is how my brain is set to like find the truth or like find what resonates with me it's where the messages are aligning right like where is joe dispenza aligned with abraham hicks and what's resonating and so i'm trying to like crystallize um, where everything that is resonating with me is being this said the same way by a different voice. I think that's mostly what I'm doing, but I think the law of attraction, which is really kind of, I would say where it's going is sort of my worldview, which is, I think it came out, the secret came out that broke through the world's sphere and it, it hit everybody and it, changed everybody i think and then it it opened you know and that was a you know think and grow rich different things that preceded it like it's been there longer than the secret but you can pinpoint different places along you know the the timeline and i think where it's going now is where actually where it went from the secret is like money 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 you know and a real um materialism kind of place and i think where it's going now is to a place where it's like the roomy quote you do not need to seek for love you just need to break down the barriers to it naturally flowing in that you've built up and you need to seek those and find those so something like it's funny i don't think i'm her her target demographic and in ways i totally don't resonate with her but do you know lacey phillips to be magnetic I did her course last year, which you can buy them individually, where that same thing. It's not about like vision boards and it's sort of like debunking the way the law of attraction works in that you don't go out and seek for it or you're not manifesting it, you're removing the blocks. And that's for a greater healing than just your money story, which all of our money stories and maybe our love stories need to, you know, clean up the bad juju around them. But it's not to get money. It's it's to live a more self-actualized, more fulfilling life in general. And we will use a car or a stack of money to intimate that idea but it's it i see the movement going way beyond that so i did her course which was it's she's just redone it now but it's called the pathway and she's got a course for money and she's got a course for love but she's got a course to reparent yourself she's got a course to go meet your shadow so these are the meditations i was doing sort of my course just ended my six months and I didn't renew to do the new class because it was just like one more thing. I'm like, Oh, I'm paying for that. And I'm not doing it every day, but it was super interesting. The reparenting course. So the idea with that is, 
um, again, to marry it with the Joe Dispenza stuff, my program, my tape recorder of what I am that's just playing out on a loop until, what's the Carl Jung quote about, like, you until you're the conscious un, the unconscious is made conscious it will play out on a loop or whatever and you will call it fate we can look up the real quote, yeah you know what i mean yeah it's along so those lines. this to me is like okay so i had certain traumas in my childhood let's not pretend that didn't happen we in fact we need to destigmatize that acknowledging that is some kind of indictment on my parents or my tribe or my society because it's not it happened to all of us and this is even my joke about it like even wetting my pants in seventh grade when clint walker god rest his soul turned around in french class with two gobstoppers in his upper lip and made a noise like an animal and i laughed so hard i wet my pants like that was a trauma you know like traumas can be little which is why it's so like i actually meditated on that like even though I let my pants in seventh grade, I truly love and deeply accept myself. Like I tried to heal. That's so funny. You know, I just offer that up as like a, I think because we've learned in this, the extremes that violence looks like this or this actually things are playing out on so much more of a subtle level. So what this, for example, the parenting course is, um, so I've written that program within my subconscious brain from zero to 15, zero to 25 generously. So what do I want to do now? I go back in and she's got a module where you are in utero and you're re you're taking yourself back to that and you're recreating the conditions that you want. She calls them your most magnetic parents. So you're recreating this experience and renewing a new memory, soothing the old one as if that's what's happening. You do it as a toddler. You do it as like six to 12. These are all different modules within the course. So that was really interesting and really healing because you are connecting to your parents in a way of like forgiving them for not being this most magnetic version of themselves while at the same time, like connecting to them. I love like the idea. I don't really know if it's true, but like even just my higher self talking to the higher selves of my parents and having this relationship with them. That's not the same. Sorry, doggies readjusting downward dog doing doggy pose. Um, the re, you know, re recalibrating this relationship that we might be having beyond the relationship we're having as just earthly people. Um, so that's sort of interesting. And then the shadow one is, again, this is along with the ethos of my podcast as well. Like, let's look at our shadows. Let's look at our rock bottoms. Let's look at our less shiny qualities and fully have a whole integration. Because I think there's a lot of shame that's bred out of the qualities that we have or the experiences that we have that aren't the, our pinnacles of achievement. In fact, maybe they're ugly. Maybe they're lazy or slothful or whatever we were told was most shameful. And instead of talking about them, meeting them, greeting them, hearing what they have to say, I mean, something I'll blend in with that is something Elizabeth Gilbert said to Oprah on a podcast about how she talks to herself with that of like all these things that are in the shadow just want their tantrums. They want to be heard. So she'll go and greet them by saying mother is here and being her own mother. So I've adopted 
with that. When I'm having a negative feeling, I'll go, hi, friend. Okay. What's going on? Why are you having a tantrum inside yourself? Like, what is this feeling? What is it doing? Oh, hi. Disconnected something. Honey, you want me to hold you? What did you disconnect? <laughs> Come here. <laughs> this is why he was locked up. Okay, sit down. There you go. Okay. Um, yeah, she will say, Mother is here and really mother this feeling that's coming from somewhere. And I, I did an episode on my podcast. It's not released yet. It just came out of editing. Um, this guy, Michael Shue, just met him recently. And this is why it's so exciting to do a podcast because of the serendipitous nature of this is about my own healing. He does intergenerational trauma work. So we went in, you know, to tie in with these feelings. These feelings might not even be mine because he took me back from, okay, what are you feeling? And then what was your mother's experience? And what was your grandmother's experience? And what was your great grandmother's experience? And he saw the through line of like, whose movie are you in? That's another whole part of the subconscious. It's not even your trauma. It's not even your wound. And I can even see something that we didn't cover on that because my fear is my family and being abandoned and being disowned. And what we didn't cover in that episode that I even saw since that one that was recorded was, oh my God, my grandma did that to my dad all the time for whatever her trauma was that she would inflict as my dad as an adult was you're in or out of the wheel all the time. You're in the wheel, you're out of the wheel. You're, you're, so this fear of abandonment that I'm sitting there mothering, I now even have a new tool to go, shit ain't mine. That's his tool. Like shit ain't mine. Like recognize when it's not even you, but you have to, it is you because you've absorbed it. And so it's part of that, all of these tools, like bringing these feelings to consciousness and then finding the modalities for healing. And all of these things are part of it between psychedelics, between, you know, the just reasoning through it, in the, which is kind of difficult because it's an emotional thing. But yeah, I, I have found those tools really, really helpful and interesting. So I don't know. Did that answer your question? Yeah. It's a marriage. It's a soup, right? <laughs> it's hard. You know, it's hard to put words on them. I feel like if you can put one word to a worldview, like mm. it's probably not your worldview. <laughs> yeah, that's so true. I, yeah. I, one of the worldviews you mentioned earlier was this idea of a simulation. And that is actually one of the worldviews I operate in. <laughs> like awesome. I, Tell me about that. Yeah, well, I, I want to get your feedback on it too. It's, mm-hmm. I'm always interested to, to see how other people view what I'm viewing and mm-hmm. how I view what other Thank people you. are viewing. It's, it's like a, a process that we go through to see how crazy we are. <laughs> I think so too. It's, uh, to me, it's like a, re, a check-in like... Well, could I'm thinking I'm finding resonance with this. Like, are you? Does that resonate with you? Because we live in this crazy planet that's just spinning around. We have no idea why we're even <laughs> doing anything that we're doing. We're like meat costumes that are animate, like it's nuts. So, 
I'm, I think that's, I think that's the seeker quality, right? I'm like, uh, this is a bit weird. What's going on? I'm like, what are you thinking? What are you thinking? I love too the way I don't think I've ever phrased it that I am operating in three. I, I guess I'm operating in uh, uh, at least three, but I never thought about it that way because they all kind of aligned. Or I guess I'm just living in possibility. Yeah. But that's I'm I'm gonna that's gonna I'm gonna ruminate on that because it was a mirror back to me of something I don't think I was aware of. I say yeah, I want to hear three, but it transforms like they're very fluid and dynamic. And then mm-hmm. at any given moment, a new aspect pops out at me from from. Mm-hmm. Well, I'd just say from the universe, you know. Mm-hmm. So with with the simulation one, I'm gonna to really quickly glaze over it, like just so you can get a, a quick idea of it. But I'm looking at the world as very, very small. I literally just have these inputs that are coming to me through my senses. I have these inner sensations that are coming, and all of the rest is an illusion. All of the rest is like, like, is the world spinning? I don't know. That's just an idea. Like, is is there something behind me? Well, I don't know. I mean, I can see it in the webcam, but behind that wall, I don't know. You know what I mean? So, like, and you, you don't know if any of these things are true or false. So what I've decided is that I'm not going to care about that. I'm going to look at it pragmatically. I'm going to say, hey, what is the fruit of this? You know, as a Christian would say, a tree, uh, a good tree bears good fruit, a bad tree bears bad fruit. You can tell a tree by its fruit. So what is the fruit of this? Well, I use this worldview when I want to have maximum power over my world because it's mostly just potential in my head. It's mostly just thoughts. So if I want to to transform a war on the other side of the world, I will find the war within me that I'm sensing right now because I don't believe any of the information is being created. It's just moving around. So I will find the war within me that is creating that and I will sense sense my pain that is that is reflected by it. And I'm not concerned about if it's true or false. I'm just concerned about the, the pragmatism of it and the, the power that it gives me to exercise my divinity over the world that I experience that I'm able to impact. Um, and, you know, if you stay here too long, it gets kind of crazy and you can easily get narcissistic. So there's a lot of pitfalls you have to watch out for. But ultimately, um, and I, I would just have to add that I do not see other people as as uh, as n- not significant in this world. Dude. And I see them as like, like reflections of me. They are me. So mm-hmm. it's like I wouldn't like... Like the the idea that you, I think it was uh, Sadguru that said that you you don't need morality uh, to tell you not to cut off your finger because it is you. So why would you cut it? So it's the same with other people in my my world. Like I don't need morality to tell me not to to hurt somebody because it's me. I like I feel that pain. That's me. <laughs> yeah, I got that powerfully actually when you described it, and I love where you went with it on elaborating. I didn't. For, so you know take it as minimizing anybody else i actually like really resonated with that and um i've been ruminating on like mirrors and the universe as a great hall of mirrors for a long time and you really think when you first understand that and start to bring it into your worldview that you understand it <clears throat> but i understand it 
on a deeper and deeper and deeper level. Your story illustrated it. The guy, Michael Shu, that I had on my podcast, I was listening to one of his yesterday. His podcast is great. It's called Heal from the Ground Up. Um, but he was talking kind of similar in that I think his family must own like a chemist, like a pharmacy. And he was talking about how frustrated he gets with people um, when they first come and they don't know how to do stuff and they learn, but that that's really a mirror for his own incompetence that he doesn't want to see. And so it's sort of, I don't know, something about those two are like, I'm going to dovetail those stories and ruminate, I think for me, uh, even deeper on what I'm viewing as the world that's reflecting back to me and to your point, how I more practically applicate what I'm learning into what's important to change about myself for said world. I think that's really beautiful. I think that's really, really interesting. And some of the stuff you said earlier about like not being able to tell what's real or if stuff behind, that's a whole different part of the spectrum to me where like, okay, we're taking different stuff like slit theory and how are we not incorporating that into our worldview when this particle is acting different if it's being watched versus if it's not because we all from movies too secretly think our toys you know might be getting up to something when we leave the room or our dog actually is hearing you know can just doesn't talk but actually is kind of human in some ways inside itself or whatever it is that we always want to personify things right so that's interesting but also um how do we know what's real? Because I appear solid, but I'm not. I'm 95% empty space. And we know that I'm just vibrating and I appear solid. So, I mean, you can get really deep on like, is the chair you're seeing even a chair? <laughs> you know, like it's, but I like where you took it because those are just kind of fun things to be like, holy shit, like this is just the levels of this blow my mind. But um, you've got to have a, a practical application for it. And that application always does come back to love. I think, as I told you in my message, when we first connected and I capitalized love, um, as I did, that's not what I always call God, but you can call it many things. But to me, it's like the power that is powering everything. So love. do you yes. believe in reincarnation? I you know, sometimes, I don't know, <laughs> I, I see the value in it. I, I, sometimes I don't even believe that my own existence has a beginning or an end. So I don't know how to look at reincarnation as like, sometimes it's just me. It's like, it's, it's just me. I, sometimes I don't even think history exists. Like, like I think there's multiple timelines and I can choose the one that makes the most sense. Yeah. I, I actually only choose history that adds value to my current life like if if i think that the history doesn't add value to my current life i won't accept it now i'm not a fact denier though because if i'm coming in confrontation with facts then i'm like okay well those facts clearly show something happened what does that say about me <laughs> yeah like there's i'm not you can easily go off the deep end with this. So there is a balance. <laughs> That's an important distinction for anyone who's like, where are your tinfoil hats and are you flat earthers? And like, no, like, th again, these are not, 
I think the distinction too is I will never buy into a deeply held ideology again or a dogmatic belief system and staying open and of course like you kind of have to believe something like I don't implicitly guide my life on a belief in reincarnation but I think it's deeply woven into my worldview and I can articulate that that's part of the sacred contracts as well the the going back to that it isn't just about archetypes and all the thoughts being energy forms that are still inhabiting the earth it's that you made a contract for I made a contract to come in and be born as Mormon I chose that. It's part of my contract. I chose my parents. It's nice to think that, actually. What value do you get from that belief system? I get the value that I chose Mormonism as... (laughs) The mailman. It's a little dog thing. We'll just cut this out. <laughs> it's totally fine. I know. I know. I know. Aww. I know. Let me just make sure it's like oh, one of my kids. Or something. No. Is that, is that breaking your eardrums? It's breaking. Finn, no, come it's here. Fine. It's fine. Come here. I know it's a bad, scary man out there. I know it. <laughs> Keeping us all safe. <laughs> Come here, buddy. Come here, honey. Nobody's out there. Nobody's out there. Nobody's out there. Nobody's out there. so funny you down there, boy. the dog species are so funny they they love identifying sounds of things yes they, can't they see. do don't they <laughs> you funny thing there you go get in the sunshine get a scratch. i've actually trained our dog to come to me whenever she's afraid and she barks a lot less now she'll just she'll start to bark i'll be like bella and then she'll come over and i'll pet her <laughs> Oh. she's like happy <laughs> so cute okay you guys stay there you guys stay there okay you asked the value <clears throat> you ready i'm ready okay i think the value that i get is that i and again this it's an important question because you've got to go many layers deep on like what would be driving my desires and behaviors obviously this answer then Sue's that right but so I I try really really hard in my worldview to not do that but I don't think that we're immune to 
it, that propensity, if not that, that's the whole point of, of what a worldview is, is that it's soothing something, soothing some primal fear, making sense of something we can't make sense of. But I like it because it does make me feel closer to my parents. It makes me feel, um, it makes me feel a sense of purpose in my first 30 years within the religion that the whole point was to give me what I have now, which was deeply believing this one thing and seeing through the illusion of that has given me true freedom in my life for what I believe now. And it, it, a Mormon, uh, an, an exit from a religion like Mormonism. I, I usually say it's everything, but of course that's saying nothing. It's it's a massive gift of perspective and wisdom. And you know, I was sharing this story about drinking that first coffee. The idea that I was born into something that I couldn't choose my own underwear, couldn't choose my own drinks, and then in an exit from it, I see certain freedoms aren't just a given that is not just a given to choose what beverages you drink. That's, that's crazy. So I, I, I love the perspective that an exit gave from me and I would almost choose it all over again. Maybe, I mean, a lot of our fears stem from a lack of control. So maybe this worldview gives me a sense of control. I chose all of this. Maybe that's what the law of attraction gives us all. You create your own reality. You know, it's soothing that sense for a need for control when we're in control of nothing. I'm seeing that it could help you potentially forgive. Do you think? Yeah. 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 And it just resonates with me. Why? I could go many layers deep on that and maybe end up somewhere not great. I'm like, oh, it was because of this trauma, because of this trauma, because of this unprocessed thing, because of this unconsciousness. I don't know, but I, I still do think it's lovely. And why reincarnation speaks to me. I mean, maybe Mormonism is really built on an eternal life. Life is eternal. There was a pre-earth life. There's an after-earth life. Me, I don't. I. I mean, I always joke like sea and hell because Mormon heaven sounds like horrific. I don't want to. I don't want to go there. <laughs> but eternal life, yeah. Again, I like the idea that my soul has a knowing that I can tap into, and that's what my higher self is, and that it has experiences that it's connected to all the minds of not just humans and animals and birds and energy in the unified field, but that like beyond, like in space, like that energetically we're connected to all of that. And I think that's scientific, but um, I like the idea that my, my soul lived before and it had certain experiences that are informing me today beyond just my traumas and my earthly experiences and my joys or earthly experiences, but that there's something that it knows that is guiding me here. I don't know. That's nice. Um, but that it also says there is something after this life. And I, I also like the idea that again, that we choose it. I think 
big part of something, if this is all true, that informs my worldview is that you, I don't know what it's like when you're not incarnate and human, but wherever you are, whatever you're doing, I think you know that when you come here, life is going to be like fucking hard and super confusing and that you're not going to know the truth and you choose to incarnate anyway. And I've had moments of my life that were fleeting and they were nothing. I was walking the dog or I was in nature and I felt so full of joy and so complete that I went, if all I ever experienced was just shitty working, breakfast, lunch, dinner, laundry pile, all of this, and then just this one moment, like it was all worth it. And my soul just like knew that that's why I chose to incarnate. Yeah, that makes a lot of sense. Thanks. No, I seriously, I, I, I have a lot of those same feelings where there, there are some moments that are just so valuable um, and so profound that it is worth all of the pain to have experienced mm-hmm. it. And you can see that the pain even allowed you to create that. I just, I came out recently on my Instagram with a, a, little, a little live video about how the devil can be made into your spirit guide. And the, wow. the, whole, the whole concept behind that is that the devil is a force in nature that exists anyways. You might as well work with it. And it, to me, it's, there's so many ways to look at it, but it symbolizes a force that questions your authenticity. And it repeatedly brings up all of these alternate illusions that that it tries to convince you are more true. And, and when you take that and you go against it and you go through the fear, you become so strong and you, it's like fire that purifies you. So in that way, I can even say, you know, thank you for all the hard times (laughs) and all the times I've been tricked by, by society, organizations, people I care about myself, ultimately, Uh, you know, thank you for all those times because they've grown me into the person I am now and it just keeps getting better from here you know like just just one epic thing after another and another and it's there's hard times but all those hard times don't need to be the focus yeah I love that that's oh man certain people really really be triggered by that it reminds me of a piece I want to write this piece about Jesus Christ being the ultimate codependent I know I'm going to get crucified for it, which is a terrible pun. Um, But so long as you can articulate what you're meaning by that, these things are so important. The the intention isn't to be controversial. It's to illuminate something, illuminate a really important point by something as ubiquitous as Satan, the Satan energy, Lucifer energy, and the Jesus energy that we're actually believing, I think, in such a thoughtless way that using them to articulate a really point, a poignant point about society is really valuable, even though it's going to fucking piss a lot of people off. Yeah. Yeah. Honestly, I'm not afraid to, to piss people off because they're, 
I don't remember who said this, but it, it wasn't me. <laughs> but they were saying that to attract the people that you want, push away all the people you don't want. <laughs> Ooh. Yeah. Oh, shit. So, oh, so I'm, I'm, I have zero, zero fears around people hating me and disliking me. You know, I've, I've grown up with a lot of people thinking I was an asshole because I, I, you know, I didn't believe in the church's dogma. And then, and then after being... You know what it is? Wherever I am, I have an inherent need to test everything. <laughs> and then maybe that comes from being deceived early on uh, to some extent. But I just, I, I question and quiz everything. And so I get kind of a, an asshole uh, label sometimes, but it, it doesn't bother me. And I'm thankful that, that, that I've been given that. That my mind because you're anything but that someone who's so deeply tapped into seeking truth and opening their mind and questioning these things obviously that that's a benefit to anyone you meet and people that you don't meet throughout all of humanity when you're meeting someone and allowing them their freedom of their worldview and and inviting them to totally be themselves that's like the opposite of what i think of when i think of an asshole so that's like blows my mind almost more than anything we've talked about <laughs> I, i've been much worse though and i have a full life story where i've certainly been an asshole so don't don't that's don't true worry. actually i and i agree <laughs> There's certain things that I said, but it was really more when I was so convinced of my own righteousness. There's certain things yeah. I said when I was Mormon that like, oh my God, I, I gag a little bit inside my mouth because you, when you're hopped up on your own rightness, mm -hmm. it kind of, and, and you can swing that way too after an apostasy. Like if it wasn't that, well then surely it was this. And maybe you haven't realized you haven't settled in the middle. And so you're still in a lot of ways like, Oh, it wasn't that, it was that. And now I'm even more convinced of my rightness, which is to me the asshole energy. <laughs> Someone mm. who thinks they're right and is not open to hearing what anybody else thinks or believes or values. Yeah. Yeah. You know, and even recently, there was a point where I would have gotten really triggered about, uh, you know, like just the right wing perspective. I, I, you know, I thought, I thought that the left wing perspective was right. And then I thought that the right wing perspective was right. And it really, it really got me because I was just thinking, you know, I want to change the world. I want to influence. I, I got to do it through politics. <laughs> so, you know, they, and then I was listening to Jordan Peterson and the guy makes so much sense. Uh, but then, you know, there's still, there's, it's not about being right. You know, it's just not about being right. It's, it's about listening to things from all the different angles mm -hmm. uh, yeah i i've i my politics as well it's an interesting thought it's this has been such an interesting time to be alive and and witness this whole spectacle of what's going on i think from a spiritual perspective my worldview someone said people like the trumps of the world will come in and they're actually playing a spiritual function the energy of the agitator and so in that way i think they're serving a, a uh, something like mormonism did for me where it's actually a consciousness raiser the more it gets us to care and question and dive i mean i know um I haven't certainly loved the politics of, of what's been going on, but I know I'm more keenly aware of my privilege as a white person. Um, it, 
all of these things, if you allow them to play a spiritual, spiritually significant role, will raise your consciousness, which is the form, the function in my worldview that they're supposed to perform. And that gave me a lot of peace about these times as well. Yeah. That way. I like that. Looking at how I can take whatever is going on around me and seeing how I can apply that to myself that helps me grow. I've been finding, I've been finding one thing politics did really well for me was teach me about my triggered energy, like what, what it's like to be triggered. And, you know, ever since doing Vipassana, which is like a a 10 day silent retreat in the Buddhist lineage, I I've been more connected to my body. And so when I'm being triggered so constantly by putting myself into, why would I even watch those, these videos? But I, I did, you know, and then, and then I'm feeling myself being so triggered and I'm learning about how to like breathe through that and to feel that and to heal whatever the wound is beneath it that's giving me such a rise. Like why why do I have such a rise when people talk about this subject? That's such an important tie-in. What triggers you is uh, that I am convinced of. What triggers you is an alert to what you need to heal. Yeah. Or investigate or be curious about. By the way, my computer's on 2%. <laughs> yeah. No worries. I it's it's been about 3 hours, believe <laughs> it or not. It's so fun to talk about. Yeah, I'm so, so excited for you. We we can we can totally wind down now. Um and I just I just want to say thank you so much for coming on this show, Natalie, and I just want to wish you so much success in your endeavors. I want to wish you so much success on your podcast as you uncover all these painful experiences with so much awareness and so much consciousness. So just, just I am thanking you right now for being a creator and for putting yourself out there and for shedding a light on all of this stuff that people don't don't get to see very often. So thank you so thank much you. for doing that. So oh, well, thank you so much for having me. And I can't wait to have you on mine. Yes, I'll come on soon. And if people want to go and check out your, your podcast, that is, um, do you, is there a website as well? Yeah, I have a website, natalieq.com. Natalieq.com. Uh, on Instagram at natalieq. Um, the, my podcast is called Your Spin Out is Gorgeous. You should be able to find it anywhere you listen to podcasts. And it's, um, can't wait till yeah. we have our next discussion on mine. Everybody needs to go and listen to the one where Natalie talked about <laughs> talks to the woman that uh, that her husband had slept with. That was such an intense episode that she handled with so much self awareness. So definitely go check that out. And that's that's it for today, guys. Thank you so much for listening. It was such a pleasure to to have to have you guys, the listeners, uh, and share this experience with us. So thank you so much. Goodbye for now.